welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today is Alison Gallagher. Alison is a GP based in Dundee with a specialist interest in emergency medicine. She's one of the doctors on the Tayside Mountain Rescue Team, is one of the course directors for the Wilderness Emergency Medical Services Institute, and is the medical officer for the Scottish Cave Rescue Team. And we're going to chat to her today about cave rescues and all things underground. Alison, thanks so much for coming on to join us. A pleasure to be here. So, I was never really that aware that there were actually caves in Scotland. It's surprising how many people share that belief. There's actually quite a lot of caves scattered over the country. So the biggest caving area is up in Ascent. That's where most of our underground passage is. But there's also caves up towards Durness, caves at Shehalian, Appin, Skye. And there's little pockets of things like the Arbroath Sea Caves as well. So there is quite a lot of passage all over the country, and we cover all of that geographical area. And all of those areas are actually in pretty remote bits of Scotland where you're not going to be you know, getting tapped on the shoulder by the local sort team. Yeah, our area is quite remote and our team are scattered throughout the country as well, which makes things a little bit more challenging in terms of response to a call out. So what's the size of the team and whereabouts are you guys based? So we've got 37 volunteers. We have people based in the far north, people based up in Durness, and we have people based down towards Edinburgh and the Lothians, a cluster of people around and about Inverness and lots of odd places throughout Scotland. So I'm guessing that in terms of response times, the cave rescue need quite a lot of lead time before they can put a large team on the ground. That's right. So assuming that we're travelling by road to get to the incident, we're going to take a few hours to get there. Our distribution through the country means that we are likely to have a hasty team there first who are likely to arrive sometime before reinforcements are on scene. But we plan for, for things taking a little bit longer than you might expect with some of the other search and rescue teams in the country. And what sort of jobs do you guys get tasked to? So... We get tasked to help look for missing people. So that might be because the terrain that's being covered involves some areas that are underground, and that might not be in a traditional cave, that might be on culverts and other places that the mountain rescue team aren't comfortable searching. And that might include places like mines, not coal mines, um, but we do cover other mines. We get called to trauma so people who've had accidents caving often when that happens because as a team we're all keen cavers often some of us are around and nearby um, in those incidents there have been times in the past where rising water levels have meant that people have become trapped in a cave and then we've need to help get those people safe and then rescue them get them out of the cave when water levels fall i guess for a lot of people their first real exposure to even the concept of cave rescue would have been during the unfortunate incident where the kids got stuck out in Malaysia. You're right Dave, that incident certainly raised the profile of 
cave rescue. Uh, fortunately, it's not a scenario that we encounter very often. And indeed, there was some impressive work. We have the challenge of the difficult environment in which we work. So we work on the basis that if it takes you an hour to cave it under good conditions, then it will take you 10 hours to conduct a rescue. We have the difficulty of getting equipment into the area of the cave where we need it, and that might be limited by the geography of what you can carry in and fit through. And also, our environment's incredibly wet at times. You might have to duck through and expect the, the packaging that we're using, the kit that we've got, will be exposed to a significant amount of water. So we, we face a lot of challenges, and a lot of those were highlighted by the, the Thai incident. I imagine that the majority of your patients are going to be underground for a significant length of time. And in the context of trauma, that's going to have an effect in terms of outcomes. Absolutely. So it's a cold environment as well. We expect the, the temperature within the cave is about four degrees year round. The water, if there's water in the cave running through, is much colder. We've put thermometers on people when we're out training and even just sitting with one part of the body in running water when you're already wet, the rate at which temperature drops is quite startling and quite surprising. So we expect our patients to be hypoglycemic, to be hypothermic, but also to have been there for a long time before we get there. So their reaction to trauma and how their pathophysiology is behaving has developed quite a lot. And in terms of equipment, what medical kit would you expect to see for a standard cave rescue job? So for a standard cave rescue job, we will take into the cave splints. So we'll have immobilisation kit for, for looking after trauma. We carry a little dragon to try and help counteract hypothermia, which we use increasingly cautiously, but gives us good results. And this is a, a hot air blowing yeah. ventilation device? So that's activated by exhaled carbon dioxide and then gives you warm humidified air for the patient to breathe in. We don't carry opiates as a team because of the limited number of call outs that we receive. So that's something that we might look for assistance with from either supporting mountain rescue teams or, or other people on site. Um, I personally will take Penthrox with me, um, although obviously being careful with that in the confined environment. And from the other things we carry are just some basic drugs for medical emergencies, such as MIs or asthma. And then we have dressings and things because a lot of, of what we anticipate are wounds. So we can try and get someone back to some state of normality where they might be able to help assist out of the cave. And I imagine in terms of the management of patients, you know, getting people to be able to self-extricate is going to make an enormous difference between a you know, a reasonably quick snatch and grab job and a huge arduous carry. Absolutely. And more importantly, we need to remember that not all of our, our cave entrances can have a casualty in a stretcher pass through them. So a few years ago now, we had an incident with a dislocated shoulder where we reduced the shoulder underground and with some heavy duty splinting and strapping to keep the shoulder in joint, the patient was able to assist their way out of the cave and had they been unable to do that had they been needing a stretcher there that would have made things very difficult and would have led to a much more protracted rescue. 
In terms of the training burden, I would imagine there's quite a lot of technical skills that, that the team requires in order to operate safely underground. Yes. So within the team, we have a, a group who have more developed rigging skills so they can rig caves for rescue, which is a different skill set in itself. We we need to be able to, to operate safely in a way that we can can move a patient through a cave and not make a, a situation worse and not create more casualties within that. We have a Larkin frame and we train regularly with that and that happens sometimes above ground. We don't need to exclusively train underground so we will do training sessions purely looking at technical things like the use of the Larkin frame or rigging or topics like that that we can transfer the skills underground um, and keep those skills fresh. One of the big problems we have is skill fade because we don't receive many call outs and we need to be able to respond when we do get that call. So that's one of our biggest problems. And the other problem we have, of course, is with the team spread so geographically far and wide, bringing people together for training causes its own issues. Actually, one of the big outcomes from the past year has been that we've started doing virtual training, which has been great for bringing everyone together on a monthly basis so that we can keep the skills fresh. And that's something that we plan to continue on longer term, even when we can meet up again. Now, I'm right in saying that you've got a couple of doctors on the team. What other kind of medical skill sets do you have within the team? So we have at the moment two doctors on the call-out list. We have one other doctor that we can access if we need to. Other than that, we have some team members, as with most organisations who have more of an interest in the medical side of things. So we have some team members who are working their way through the Wembley International First Responder and are planning to do the WEMT course with a view to doing CASCARE to just provide a little bit more resilience on the medical side. And for folks that haven't come across these courses, Wemsey International looks specifically at wilderness and and really remote environments. Yeah, that's right. They're looking at remote and austere environments. And for us as an organisation, the advantage is that because they're intensive learning courses over a week, we can send a team member away and they can develop their skills significantly within that week and then bring that back to the team where we can continue to nurture it. And casualty care is something that we've come across with mountain rescue teams. Am I right in saying that this is a, a sort of an opiates licensing exam? Part of it is that it allows people when they are deployed by Police Scotland for a rescue to use a formulary of drugs. But it also has a high level of medical skills and knowledge that need to be demonstrated so that the candidates can provide a high level of care. So I'm sort of envisaging where the cave rescue team and your average basics responder are likely to interface. And realistically, it's probably going to be some sort of traumatic incident within a cave. I'm guessing the last thing you want is an untrained person going down the cave to try and offer some help. Whilst we wouldn't want someone to go into a cave or a mine on their own, because that would come with it some inherent risks, we would always should the situation allow offer support to anyone who's able to 
bring skills to the scene, to the patient, if that is what is required. How that would happen would depend on a, a very much an incident-by-incident incident basis. We have some caves where it just wouldn't be safe to take a non-caver in, and the balance of that is that some caves, actually with a little bit of assistance, we can get people a fair way in, and they would be able to provide us with help and support but that would be reviewed at the time. And it would depend on what the responder was comfortable with. It may be that they are asked to give advice and support from the surface into the cave. And how does that work in terms of communications? You know, if you've got a, a basics responder who's out on the surface and you've got some first aiders and CAS carers from the cave team with the patient, uh, what sort of comm systems do you use? So we have a couple of systems that we tend to use. One is voice-based and can work very well, but can have its limitations. Our newer system is something called CaveLink, and that works through sending text messages between the, the surface and then other units within the cave. So that works well for having a clear message that can be delivered and that's what we tend to use. We will use the voice systems as well, but more often it's CaveLink. So that message can't be misconstrued. And if you're trying to send a very specific, important point, then you can be reassured that should that relay work, then the message will arrive as it has been sent. It won't be something that is difficult to hear. And then maybe that message isn't received in the manner which your responder would like it to be. It's worth kind of highlighting the fact that all of the usual communication methods that responders will use on the ground, so airwaves, radios, mobile phones, potentially VHF handsets, none of those are going to work effectively in a cave or a mine environment. So we have occasionally tried with VHF sets in a mine to see how far in we can get a signal and how far in we can have that working and it's not very far at all. So no, your standard methods of communication won't work, but we would always have an experienced operator assisting the basics responder and acting to facilitate that message being conveyed into the cave. Brilliant. So, I mean, for me, based in Pitlochry, I would imagine Shahalian's my most local cave. If there was to be a, an accident within the cave and I was tasked as a basics responder, let's say for the sake of argument, I wasn't going to be entering the cave. What sort of things could I be expecting by the time the patient gets out to me? So you would be expecting someone who's been in that cave for a significant period of time. They're likely to have been in the cave for a good period of time prior to whatever event has happened that's necessitated a rescue. And they are likely to be in reasonably poor condition. Not many cavers take much in the way of food and drink into a cave with them because they're planning for a, a shortish period of activity of a few hours, sometimes a bit longer. But anything you need to carry can become a little bit of a burden, so the so cavers often don't take much with them. That obviously works fine until something goes wrong, and then that's a, a decision that can cause problems. So... You would expect to see injuries or a patient who's unwell, but that the insult occurred some time ago. So things may be more developed than you would anticipate from other scenarios without that delay. 
it's going to make everything significantly more complex in terms of the medical management and even things like pain control are going to be much trickier when it's not going to be just a simple sort of one hit wonder. Absolutely. Everything becomes more complicated when it's protracted. It's going to take a lot of manpower to get someone out of the cave. So all the the things that you might not think of as being a challenge becoming increasingly challenging and become things that we need to consider. And then to cap it all, the Shahalian caves are quite a long stomp from the nearest bit of track or road from memory. Absolutely. So most caves involve a significant carry out. We would usually look to the local mountain rescue team for assistance with that. But nothing is ever, ever simple and straightforward. Actually, on a missing person search last year, had my head in one of the Shahalian caves. It was the first time I'd been in there for some time. It was a pretty remote spot. That gives us a really kind of clear picture of some of the complexities of working around caves and mines and some food for thought for me, certainly as a responder, in terms of things I need to think of for that underground environment. We've been asking all of our presenters to give three top tips for working in their area of specialism alongside basics responders. What would your suggestions be in terms of caves and mines? So my first bit of advice would be to work within what you're comfortable with. If you're comfortable, and maybe you've been underground before, but if you're comfortable offering to come underground, then please do discuss that with us. But likewise, if your idea of coming into some cold, dark, wet cave is the last thing that you would like to do, that's absolutely fine. We do understand that not everybody is a caver. And secondly, this isn't going to be something that's fast. This is going to be a long job doesn't mean that we don't need the basic responders support but just that allow us a little bit more time than you might expect other things to take this is going to be a, a slow process thirdly it's just remember we are here we are able to provide support in those specialist situations where something's happening underground and we can provide advice if required Alison that's fantastic thanks so much for walking us through that And I have to say, I think I'm probably in the group of never really wanting to be underground. You'd be very welcome, Dee. (laughs) Thanks very much, Alison. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. 